chapter 2, verses 1 to 13. Favoritism forbidden. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, don't show favoritism. Suppose someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor person in shabby clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the one wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the one who is poor, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith? and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him. But you have insulted the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are slandering the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do not commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So there I was in Llanguntlo, the parish church of St. Cunclo in Mid Wales, my first parish being a vicar in the rural, a very rural areas of Mid Wales. Usual congregation, 11 plus the organist. But there was one additional person this week, rather a disheveled sort of old coat, who needed very thick coats in those days, because the heating was not terribly efficient. In fact, I was sent out uh, as a leaving present one, uh, uh, when I left with a pair of gloves that didn't have any fingers on the end of them, so it would help my hands recover from them. But in the congregation was this chap with this coat sitting there. He must have been in his late 60s, early 70s. I didn't know who on earth he was. One or two people spoke to him, seemed all right, and he left with only a few words. I said to our church warden, Mo- Mo- Molly, who, who was that then? Never seen him before. Oh, that was the Bishop of Newcastle, he said. She said. Bishop of Newcastle. And I'm thinking in my heart, oh, no, I really wasn't very friendly to him at all. I would have been so much nicer and so much more engaged in conversation if I'd known he was a bishop. And then you read this passage. 
And I'm thinking, oh. But really, that congregation, just behaving in their normal sort of way, a bit friendly, but not overly so, not treating him any differently to anybody else, were spot on, weren't they? I was the one who was thinking, I would rather have treated him differently. And I would have done had he even had his dog collar on, let alone his fine robes. James is wanting the church to recognize that we're all equal before God, that we all are equally loved, that we all have that sense of dignity before the Lord, and all of us should never be discriminated against in any way, shape, or form. He makes this point in the very first verse. I wonder if it's possible to have that first verse up there, Alan. My brothers and sisters, as believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he's saying, we're all part of one family, my brothers and sisters. He identifies himself with them. And he speaks of the God of glory, who is the one we focus on and worship, the one who is Lord, so that we all recognize that he is the one we're serving. He is the master of us all. And he is Jesus Christ, the man who, as his brother, he didn't recognize at all when he was first exercising his ministry in James, but then came to see who he really was and recognized that it's Christ that we need to look to and show all our love and adoration to him. It's in Jesus that we see the model for uh, a lack of favoritism and an all-embracing, unconditional love. And therefore, he says, as Jesus was, so don't show favoritism. As we look at Jesus' example, as we learn from him, and as we seek to live by him, by the power of the same spirit that Jesus had, was in him, and has poured out among us, so we are to be. So look at Jesus' life. The poorest and the most despised of society were the ones that Jesus spent his time with. They were the ones who invited him to party, not the rich. They loved to have him at their places where they just could be themselves. Because he didn't make them feel awkward, he rather affirmed them as people, but enabled them to know that there was a better way of living for them to move into. Don't show favoritism. What story from the Old Testament, from the book of Genesis, comes to mind when you think about favoritism? This is how not to be a good father. On this Father's Day, this is how not to do it. Who is the, the guy, the outstanding star of showing favoritism? Joseph, well, Jacob, that's right, into Joseph. Joseph, this great technicolor dream coat that he was given and all the privileges, he's this favorite son. Just listen to the words of Genesis 37 for a minute. Now, Jacob, this is the father, lived in the land where... Uh, where his father had stayed, the land of Canaan, Isaac, that is. This is the account of Jacob. So Joseph, a young man of 17, now note that age, very, very significant age to be at when you're in a place of relationship with your father. He was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilah and the sons of Zilpah, who had different wives to what he had, of course, because Joseph, Sarah, and and, uh, and Jacob were Isaac. 
Uh, therefore, he brought their father a bad report about them. So he's snitching on them. And Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he had been born to him in his old age. And he'd made him a richly ornamented robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Huge. And of course, it wasn't made much better when Joseph starts going on about his dreams. You know? And they're all going to bow down to him, and he's the youngest, and they're all going to be subservient to him. And it says, when he told them these dreams, they hated him even more. So although we can understand to an extent why J Jacob saw Joseph as his favorite, it led to the highest order of family breakdown and nearly the end of Joseph's life and tragedy for their family. This sort of attitude, when it's prevalent in our society, leads to social breakdown too. And it's the same emotions that are at play, I think, as we've heard some of the testimonies from the Grenfell Tower inquiry that have been expressed there. And do you remember, I don't know if you saw the news at 10 uh, a couple of days ago where Bishop Graham Tomlin, who's the Bishop of Kensington, uh, spoke at the service. And we've got a picture that Alan has kindly prepared for us to show. Graham, there he is in the middle with one of those members of Grenfell Tower. Graham is the person who I was at college with in, in Oxford, and he's been a good friend down the years. He is from Down End, and he's actually coming to open the church when we go back into it on the 5th of October. It's a great guy. His heart has been enlarged over this last year. He was intimately involved in the, Gren in the Grenfell Tower fire with all those people there on the spot. He was there in the procession, the silent procession, with those people. He was there releasing the doves and representing the peace that is prayed for that might come from this terrible disaster. And in the service, he said these words. We pray that Grenfell Tower will turn from a symbol of pain and loss a symbol of failure to care for one another into a symbol of change and renewal. We pray that the Grenfell Tower will turn from a symbol of pain and loss and a failure to care for one another. Now that is a absolutely, well, what can you say? It's reality, isn't it? It hasn't happened. We haven't been loving one another in the way that God intends. He's recognizing the reality and the pain that comes from it. But he recognizes that with God, there is also an opportunity to change and renew. Justice and peace. We've been singing about, praying that God would bring those things. And we pray that we'll see the Holy Spirit at work, that out of the ashes will come a new understanding and a new passion in our society to see the poor and those who are marginalized brought back into a place where they 
should be in our society. A place where God would want them to be. That brings us back to what James is teaching in verse 8. Love your neighbor as yourself, he says. This is the royal law. The royal law. Why does he call it royal? Well, because it's the supreme law for living well. It sums up all other laws. It is the source of every other law for human relationships. It's God's great plan for society and for family life. Love your neighbor, love your spouse, love your partner as you love yourself. Don't show discrimination against others. When we fall short, society starts to break down and so does family life. Human families and church families too. We're only too aware that that is happening. But the good news is that the Bible is realistic enough to know that that is always going to be the case. It always happens. There are splits in churches, people leave churches, and there are all sorts of things when love doesn't win. Paul, in his letter to the Romans, chapter 3, verse 23, recognizes this and says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us in the same boat. There's level ground at the foot of the cross. We're all falling short of what God wants for us. That's the bad news. That verse is quite well known, and I recite it quite often in sermons. What I'm not so familiar with is the next verse, verse 24. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and, he goes on, are justified freely by his grace. Now, if you were a Pentecostal congregation, you go, Hallelujah! But you're not, but I can see you smiling, at least some of you. And are justified freely by, and it gets better, through the redemption that comes by Jesus Christ. In other words, the redemption, the redeeming, the buying back from slavery to sin into becoming a child of God, going back to our previous uh, sermons that we've been looking at and songs. I'm no longer a slave to sin. I am a child of God because Christ on the cross has redeemed us, brought us back, and brought us into a new relationship because mercy has prevailed. And one of the great catchphrases of this reading, which I hope we'll all remember, is those last words in verse 13 that James says unequivocally, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. In other words, God's grace covers all sin and brings us back into relationship with God. Let me just conclude with one key piece of teaching here. That the cross is not just about forgiveness of sin. Not just about that. It is about restoring relationship with God. Because we're talking about love here. We're talking about love. Not just an account that's been, you know, sort of wiped clean. It's not debts, not just debts cancelled. It's about restoring a relationship. One of the great scholars of our time is 
uh, Kenneth Bailey, who wrote The Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. It's a wonderful book. And he says this, Sin for Jesus is not primarily a broken law, but a broken relationship. Sin for Jesus is not just a primarily about a broken law, but a broken relationship. And what God is seeking to do is restore relationships between people and between people and himself as we love one another and learn to do that by God's grace. I'd love just to finish with one story. I know time's going on. One thing, and it relates to if God had a favorite rock, I tell you, I think this will be it. Now, there should be a picture of the rock that Alan's got for me on here. Thank you. This is a rock from the island of Iona. And it is one of the oldest pieces of rock in the world. Three billion years old, says on Wikipedia. Three billion years old. And I'll tell you why I think it's the favorite rock of the Lord. Because of the colors and the impurity. Those, all those different colors are made of impurities in the rock. It's not beautifully clean marble, all nice and pure, but it's got loads of impurities. And when the people of Iona and the architects were thinking about what to use in the rebuilding of the Abbey of Iona, they chose this rock for the font and the altar. Now, what does that say to you? We think about the impurities of us all. In baptism, we are welcomed into God's body. Unconditional. The grace of God is being poured out as we repent of our sins and turn to Christ. So God welcomes us with all our impurities, washed clean in the waters of baptism and accepted as his dear children. When we receive the bread and wine from the altar table, it's the grace being outpoured. It's the mercy triumphing over judgment. We deserve God's judgment. All of us do. But the mercy poured out wine, broken bread, makes it possible for us to know reconciliation with God. So, by arms that open wide, our arms of love, in the place where mercy is extended, is the place of impurity made clean. Let's pause and thank God for the way in which that mercy triumphs over judgment.